Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Rebecca Turkowitz's unsettling, sometimes horrifying debut collection of stories, Here in the Night, calls up ghosts and monsters of every kind into the lives of ordinary young women, many living in Maine. These ghosts play on our anxieties, tricking our senses and causing us to doubt whether or not characters have seen or felt the presence of something supernatural or monstrous moving into their lives. In The Last Unmapped Places, twin sisters have different encounters with a ghoulish man with webbing between his arms. In At This Late Hour, an unlikely romance buds in a haunted hotel where love is reflected with terrible, phantasmagoric consequences. And in Cry Baby Bridge, a family's desire to escape the mistakes of their daughter seems to call forth an ancient ghost of women's pain. These stories each possess you in a different way, moving into and out of genres and realms of fictional terror with the confidence of an assured short story writer. What lasts in this collection is not necessarily that ghosts lurk in the dark shadows or in the deep wells of other worlds waiting to burst forth, but that they may in fact live among us, monstrous neighbors, friends, loved ones, and strangers, frightening less for their claws and more for their recognizable anger and fury. Rebecca Turkowitz is a writer and high school English teacher living in Portland, Maine. She is the author of Here in the Night, a collection of 13 spooky literary stories. Her fiction and humor writing have appeared in The Normal School, Chicago Quarterly Review, Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, Smoke Long Quarterly, The New Yorker's Daily Shouts, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA in fiction from The Ohio State University. She has been a resident at Hewn Oaks Art Artist Residency and won a 2020 Maine Literary Award in the Short Works category. She is also most recently one of Debutiful's top debuts of 2023. She loves cats, the ocean, and unsurprisingly, ghost stories. Welcome to Burn by Books, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. So here in the night sits magically in between the world of real and perceived ghosts. Most of the stories have supernatural events, but those events and personages could just as easily be read as figments of overactive or traumatized imaginations. How do you play in that liminal world between introducing a ghost and developing the impression of the ghostly? I think one of the reasons this comes up a lot in my stories is I think the sort of not knowing the sort of ambiguity of ghost stories is part of what makes them so scary. Um, And I really, you know, a lot of my favorite works, you know, at least, especially in novels, at least kind of you start that way. And I think the sort of like 
to me, it almost feels like the most delicious part of this, of something spooky of a ghost story or a horror novel is before mm. the monster appears. Huh. Um, and I can think of like a few exceptions, but almost always the sort of like before the vision of what the ghost or the monster might be is scarier than when it actually appears. Mm. Um, and I also think I'm really interested in the way that ghost stories or the monsters or whatever affects the characters and so i don't always get fully you know i think i live in that space where they're trying to think about you know how to make sense of their own lives as it you know as and the ghost story is kind of help is pushing them towards something Mm, yeah, it's like a catalyst that suddenly reveals this tension spot or friction in their lives. I really like that. The, um, do you have a particular sort of uh, either in the short story form or otherwise ghost stories that you return to again and again and become a uh, an inspiration for you or have uh, influenced your writing over the years? Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm a huge Shirley Jackson fan and, and have been for a very long time. Um, so the haunting of Hill house, you know, I return to a lot and, um, we have always lived in the castle is really, is an interesting example. Cause it's not really a ghost story. It's, it's Gothic. Um, but there's not, you know, supernatural element to it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot about that. The atmosphere of that book is something that I'm always kind of like running towards. Yeah. It's very spooky. I think. Yeah. I'm I'm also like I love the shining. Mm, me too. Yeah, it's yeah, both book and movie. And I also take a lot of inspiration from local legends and ghost stories, which usually when I incorporate like local legends in the stories, which I do a lot, they're invented, they're kind of made up. Mm. Um to fit, you know, it's sort of the ideas or questions that I'm thinking about with the story. Um, but I take a lot of inspiration. I, I love like true ghost story books. And so I use those a lot. Uh, do you feel like Maine has, I, I lived in Maine for a while and I feel like it has more uh, of that sort of ghostly lore than the traditional state. Uh, maybe, you know, similar to like Louisiana or something like that, where there seems to be a kind of in touchness with uh, ghosts and ghost stories that's different. Do you find that to be true? Yes, definitely. Um, yes, I, I think that there's a lot of, you know, coastal ghost stories. Um, and Maine is a place that I think kind of takes pride in some of that mm. creepiness. Yeah, that was always my my perception. And yet you're right that there's something about the coast as well with the the angry ocean and the and the sort of mist coming off the the water that presents itself as already ghostly. Yeah, there's like I, there's always like a joke and anytime Maine is in a movie, there's fog, like it's always foggy yeah. in Maine. But then like sometimes it's really foggy here. <laughs> this summer in Maine was incredibly foggy, like the <laughs> whole the whole summer. That was it was so strange. Um, the word that I keep coming back to to describe this collection is unsettling. Sometimes that unsettling comes from phantasms. Sometimes it is the violence of the real world. And in others, it's the disappointments of relationships, intimate family and otherwise. 
do you do different things to craft these kinds of unsettling, or is it all the same sort of uh, devices that you use to unsettle, whether it's a friendship gone bad or a man with webbed arms? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. I think a lot of it, I think a lot of the sort of spookier unsettling, the sort of man, the webbed arm man's unsettling, um, I think of as more about, you know, being contributing, sort of thinking about atmosphere and mood. Um, and then a lot of the more like realistic unsettling, the tension between characters, the sort of questions about who is safe and who is unsafe in certain situations. I think that comes from, like, I feel like the the like webbed arm, the ghost, like that type of unsettling is really intentional. I'm trying to build it into the story. Mm-hmm. And then I think, some of the unsettlingness between characters comes from more organically, maybe from like the questions. Like I'm, I'm often writing and I have questions in my mind as I'm writing. And I think there are unsettling questions, you know, they're, that's why they're kind of stuck in my mind. And so I think that comes from more naturally from like, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of trying to tease something out and that often is kind of unsettling. I like that, that there's a question buried at the core of it that is that is itself unsettling. And that as you sort of get to the, the crux of that question, one is unsettled. I'm, I'm seeing that now that you've revealed that for me in a lot of the stories. Crybaby Bridge is a terrifying story uh, about the ghost of a woman who supposedly killed her child by throwing it over a bridge into the water. But as is the case with a lot of your writing, it has allegorical resonance with the struggles of young women. This story might on the surface seem as a setup to be a critique of abortion, but it turns into something very different. Could you talk about how the social issues in this story work their way through in this allegory? That's actually, that's one of the older stories in the book. I wrote it a kind of a long time before the book was published. Um, And I was younger and I was thinking a lot about, I just moved to Ohio, which is where I did my graduate work, got my MFA there. And I was thinking about reproductive rights and also a lot about shame and the way women are made to feel shame for all types of choices around reproduction. And I was thinking about how such a private, personal thing has become such a political and in some ways kind of public as if like that we don't you know women don't have access to you know keeping that part of their that part of their people are allowed to you know have opinions about that part of their life and um and you know this was before a lot of you know in some ways that story like became more relevant almost after I wrote it um you know like worries about actually losing the ability uh, and, you know, and, and so many women already have lost the ability of lost reproductive freedom. Um, yeah. So I think what I was really trying to think about was not the abortion or not have it. It was the, it was more about the way she was, this character was made to feel about having an abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's certainly it, the fact that you are referencing it its genesis in Ohio makes me think of what just happened in Ohio and the and the rather radical change of uh, of the status of 
uh, of reproductive rights in that in that state since you since you left. Um, but I, I I really like the way that you you talk about there the issue of shame because it almost feels as though the the shame that is heaped upon the main character in Crybaby Bridge uh, is what uh, calls forth this this ghost, and that there is less at the end a kind of uh, oh that that ghost is coming to kill me or haunt me and more a recognition of a like a historical link of shame. Would you would you say that's right? Yeah, yeah, I love that reading of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that you know it's a this this so the Crybaby Bridge legend is that is like a real in the Midwest. There are all these Crybaby bridges with all types of stories. Um, oh, really? Ah. Yeah, um, and there are a lot of them do have are usually it's you know like la llorona like the mexican legend ghost story um a, a lot of the midwest ones also involve a mother in some way some way um killing her child or infanticide um and it's always the you know it's always a woman associated with it if it's not just like a kid and but then i when i was adding details to the legend or creating it um just so it takes place in indiana um i was thinking about how in like yeah, that even just like the act of getting pregnant in certain situations has so much shame. And I, yes, and I think I was trying, it was trying to be like more of a mirror, but not in the way that it was like a condemnation of the the choice to get an abortion. Yeah. Yeah, that was very clear. <laughs> uh, and the, as you say, the that holding a mirror up is is how exactly how I in, interpreted it. Uh, there are many wonderful stories in in this collection, and one of my very favorites is Warnings. It's quite short, barely two pages, but it really packs a wallop. It describes a group of young girls running in a pack and recounting all the warnings they've been given about running. Would you be willing to read this for us? Yes, of course. Thank you. Warnings. We've been warned about running alone. We'd also been warned about walking at night about bus stops and Uber drivers, about the hungry shadows of parking garages. We've been warned and we'd warned one another about parties at Joe DiCarlo's house, Sarah's older brother, the lacrosse players who sat at the lunch table closest to the pizza station. We heeded most of the warnings most of the time, but we were runners. And no one told the boys team to practice in pairs or avoid wearing headphones at night. Besides, when we ran, who could touch us? When we ran in the long, in the peach light of an early sunset or in the long gray dawn, we were of the world, but not in it. So that fall afternoon, when Lucy darted ahead of us, we only thought, show off. It was just practice during a week without a meet. There was no need to leave the pack so soon. Lucy was fast, probably the fastest among us, but she didn't always win her races. She couldn't pace herself. She was usually so quiet and controlled, but sometimes at the start of a race, she vibrated with a fierce energy that she couldn't rein in. We figured we'd pass her in a mile easy our legs chipping away steadily as she flagged. But after a mile and a half, we still hadn't caught her. We leaned a little further into the wind, lifted our legs higher. 
At mile two, no one even joked about stopping at Dunkin' Donuts when our course swung us by its orange lettering. We concentrated on our form. We measured our breathing. The metal taste that came to us during meets appeared. We wanted to beat her. She was our teammate, yes, but she always held herself a little apart. She did pre-calc problem sets on the bus to meets, declined rides home after practice, and never shared secrets at team sleepovers. She was Coach Walton's favorite. At mile three, Maria Elena finally said, Where is she? She can't be far. We got this. No, maybe we should. No, we should have caught her already. Maybe she veered off for a quick study break, Rylan said. Do you think she's okay? Maria Elena asked. It's weird. What options did we have? We kept running. We thought she'd be there at the end waiting for us. A quick glance at her watch to hint at her disappointment. We finished the run, did our cool-down exercises, joked about our numb noses, and still, there was no sign of her. Coach Walton asked where Lucy was. We wondered if he'd noticed so quickly if any of us were missing. We shrugged. She was with us, and then she wasn't. And then she wasn't. And then she wasn't. And then she still wasn't. We backtracked. We texted. We called her name. We checked the Dunkin' Donuts. We paired off and fanned out. We tried to remember who were her close friends. Later, there were police dogs. There were flyers on every telephone pole. And there was her strangely stoic mother on the Channel 4 News. And later, much later, there was her body by the bank of a river on the other side of town her team t-shirt tangled in the branches of a nearby bush. In interviews, we told the police, but she was running. How could we explain? How could we make them see? When we ran, we removed ourselves from the world and all the traps it had set for us. When we ran, our bodies were only ours. When we ran, we were out of reach. Nothing bad could have happened, we insisted in those first interviews. She was so fast. Thank you so much. This story is both a tale of female friendship and empowerment through uh, use of one's body and of the constant omnipresent danger of violent misogyny, in, especially in the United States. How do those two things join up in this story? Yeah, um, I think, you know, there is this reckoning that, you know, happens where, you know, when you're like running or I'm, I'm a, I don't run very much anymore, but I'm a walk, like I walk a lot. And I think a lot about how, when I'm walking, when I'm moving, you know, I feel both, there's this kind of strange unsettling, it's like almost, you know, this tension where when I'm walking, I feel you know, very like it's the time when you feel really present in your body, you depending, feel very present in my body. And you and I think there is this sense of empowering when you're moving around. Um, but of course, when you're and I think also like when I walk, I often it's like I'm in my I'm in my body, but I'm also kind of in my head and I feel very like, oh, I'm enjoying the world. But I, I think I have that almost like I don't feel a part of it. You know, I'm like moving through it. And but then, of course, for women, 
um, there's this constant reminder that there is danger um, and that just to be, you know, to be in your body in public is dangerous. Yeah, it's I, I it's not a uh, ghost story, but it is haunting and it is it, it's very upsetting. And then, when, you know, as we realize that something indeed may have happened to this teammate and that it could have been any of those things. It could have been any of the the people or or personages or ideas that are named in the in the story, and that omnipresence of it. That even if you go out and you're running and you're running as fast as you can, you can't seem to outrun the the misogyny. Is that why, why running was an important part of it? Running just because I think, like you were saying, I think it's about this idea of wanting to feel immune and feeling a feeling immune and then the under the dawning understanding that this sort of granted immunity doesn't actually exist and i think that's a hard moment for these girls um but an important one in their lives the last unmapped places is an incredible story. It handles the relationship between twin sisters with divergent lives and fortunes, a ghostly haunting of one of the sisters by a webbed armed man, suicide, religious intolerance, and, and so much more. One of the surprising things that you do with this story is to narratively diffuse the death that will occur later in the story. You write, before we go any further, Hannah is dead. And yet, because we don't understand the circumstances of this death, it manages to ramp up our anxiety. This feels like a trope of some classic horror stories. Um, is it one that you recognize from other stories? And what's it doing in your fiction? Yeah, I, yes, I think like a lot of, yes, I think, you know, like, I'm thinking about, you know, mysteries that are more how whodunits as opposed to whodunits. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of horror has the sort of like turn of the screw has that kind of frame. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's the kind of like dropping in this thing has happened. And now we're going to, you know, the tension comes from the figuring out how and what happened. Mm -hmm. um, not that it happened. Um, I think it also came from it came late, like in the earliest draft. I, I don't think I think that came later. That section, I think there, were, and I and I really opened things up. I was really struggling because it felt almost like, you know, it's a first person narrated story, and it felt almost like disingenuine to have that be a surprise. It felt like that was not the surprise of the story. That was not what I wanted to be the surprise. But as with any sort of like death or, you know, that is that becomes the center when it happens of that scene. And so I think by putting it earlier, it felt less like the reader would feel like I was trying to trick them or. Mm -hmm. And I think it also decentered like the fact that she's dying so that there were other parts of that scene that I wanted to be more important. What was interesting about the flip-flop that you do with the course of their lives? Because the the first-person narration sister is starts as, as kind of a bit of a disaster. And then when she gets to college, everything seems to move easily. 
and her sister who had been the star and, and who everyone loved, all of a sudden things are incredibly difficult. Uh, wh why was that an attractive um, switch to play? Yeah, I feel like that was a switch that came kind of naturally to the to this I to the like question to the, what I was thinking about for those characters um I was thinking a lot about like the trajectory of life like of our whole lives and sort of the stories we tell about our lives mm. um and I think like I like I also I don't think that was in my plan for the story um but it was just very organic to it yeah I think it just came very organically and i and i think like for the narrator it's really important to her because she feels like part of the reason her life whether it's true or not i think she feels like part of the reason her life was righted was because of the support that she got from this from her sister and i think something in there's there was something very interesting to me in that she gets the support and is then able to kind of like flourish whereas the sister kind of loses and just like I was thinking a lot about like what hap like how do people lose traction in their lives or gain or gain it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Female friendship is really important to you in this collection. In in deserving of you, uh, there's no ghost per se, but the importance and then downfall of a friendship between women uh, is uh, is an incredible tension point in the story. What are the importance of these kinds of female friendships in this collection and how can they sometimes turn into horror stories? I mean, yes, I think female friendship is super important in my work. I think because it's very important in my life as well. Um, and I think one of the sort of tensions, I think like so many of these characters get, you know, tremendous amounts of support and tremendous amounts of sort of like, you know, like almost like like it's a compass in their life sort of living towards these friendships and being guided by these friendships um and i think deserving of you and several other stories deals with the way that that type of support is not always kind of supported by the structures of what is expected um so deserving of you kind of deals with two incredibly close friends you know who you know, like when one of them is getting married. And I think, you know, I'm thinking about how valuable these friendships are, but, you know, how unusual it is for, you know, like our structure is not sort of, our society is not structured around friendship. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that there's not, the expectations are not like you move to be close to a friend or. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess just uh, said that one of the problems with friendship is that there are a million ways to describe the end of a love affair, and there's no way to describe the end of a friendship, mm -hmm. and and yet they are equally profound in your lives. I, do you find that to be true? Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I think there's also there's just there's more narratives about you know romantic partners. Um, and marriages and love affairs. And so then the sort of, there's not a, there's not like one narrative around like what the through line of a friendship is in a life, which I yeah, think like is- that's it, very true. Yeah, which I think is like freeing in a lot of ways and allows female friendship to be really interesting because it doesn't have some of those expectations to constrict it. Mm. But then I think that tension comes when we don't, you know, when you don't have that narrative of what that looks like. 
queer characters and queer love features in, in your work and in the title story, Here in the Night, there is a sense that queerness must defend itself against the creatures of the night, but that those creatures are very often men. Can you talk a little bit about how queerness operates in these stories? Um, yeah, I think a lot of the stories are about, you know, community. I think community is really central, both as this important, you know, central, often beautiful thing. And also it's like to have a community, you have an outside, you have like an other. And so I think when I, you know, thinking about the way queerness can create community and then also the ways it can set you outside of a community. Mm -hmm. And then here in the night is very much about sort of the way being queer ch can change, you know, your existence in the world in terms of like how safe you are, where you are. Yeah. And sort of like how ha having that identity can affect your experience in ways that people don't always sort of recognize or see. This is another story in which you you say perhaps before the denouement, these are characters that will survive and survive this terrible pickup truck that comes to their broken down car. And uh, and I was interested to see again the way in which you seem to diffuse something while at the same time kind of lighting another another fuse. Uh, and and that seems like something that you you like to play with as a writer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like I, I'm interested in story structure a lot. And so I think part of it comes from like wanting to, how do you tell a story that meets the needs of a reader and also while also kind of subverting the like traditional narrative arc? Mm -hmm. I liked that very much in this story. I, before I let you go, I'd love to hear about anything that you're reading and loving right now and that you might want to recommend for our listeners. There's so, so many good books came out this year. Um, and also just I've, I've recently been reading so much. But Chain Gang All-Stars was a book I recently read and just. That's oh, quite that. something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like a hard, it's interesting. It's like a hard book to recommend because it's like, do you want to just be like totally devastated? Um, <laughs> and deeply troubled. But um, I really would recommend it to anybody. It's amazing. I also, this book came out last year, but What We Fed to the Manticore is a collection of stories and all of them are told from the perspective of animals. And it was a book I'd heard a lot about it and I, you know, I just like hadn't gone around to it and I picked it up and I read like one, like, yeah, I started kind of in the middle of the story. I just read the opening of, I think it was the second story and it was like instantly like I have to put down everything I'm reading and read this book. Mm, um, I love that. Yeah, just the language in it is gorgeous. I also, I keep saying recently, but I think it was like almost a year since I've read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, but I can't stop talking about it. Just an unbelievable novel. That was my favorite book of all last year. It's usually hard for me to to break it down in that way, but it, it just was. Yeah, it's just, it's just like, it's so good. It's remarkable and it, it, it contains multitudes in in every sense of that term. It 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 somehow captures everything, and it is both you know beautiful in its depiction of of the artistry of game making, um, but also the the incredible stories of of friendships and loves and and almost loves. Yeah, it's I love that book. Yeah, so it's amazing. 
Well, these are great recommendations. Thank you, Rebecca. And I want to really recommend here in the night stories, and you will just enjoy them spooky and and capturing and wonderful characters that evolve in unexpected ways. So please uh, find at your local indie here in the night. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Rebecca Turkowitz for coming on the show to talk about her debut collection of short fiction, The Wonderfully Spooky, Here in the Night, out now with Black Lawrence Press. You can find links to purchase Here in the Night and all of Rebecca's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in touch. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>